This is Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Streaming nationwide on the 710 Sports app and 710sports.com. Now here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. As I left Yankee Stadium on Friday night, there was a significant part of me that felt like I had watched that game before, multiple times in fact, sitting on a slim lead, bargaining, rationalizing, hoping that the Mariners hold on to it as that stadium specifically stirs to life and knowing that, yeah, one run's probably not going to do it. And Paul, the Mariners end up salvaging or saving themselves from total devastation with yesterday's win, but the story from this series is Seattle's inability to hold on to leads, which unfortunately against the New York Yankees is something we're very familiar with. Yeah, and also we're just familiar with period of late. They have blown leads in five of their last nine games. And what's the cause? I mean, it's easy to point at one specific arm in the bullpen. Diego Castillo had some rough issues over the course of the weekend. Yeah. It was just awful. I must have came back in person. Ah, it walking he walked two dudes. Was not was not close to the strike zone. Clearly, it, it wasn't like he was battling his way in there. You're like, oh my, what? And then he hits Rizzo yeah. with his second pitch, and the bases are loaded. He's fortunate to get out of that, only allowing a run. Now, you can't, you, you really can't go into a game and say, okay, the bullpen's got to be perfect for this team to win. Like that's that's not that's not a it's not a reasonable. The problem with their with their team this weekend was hitting, but yeah, the bullpen, yeah, and Castillo specific. There, there were some moments that you can point at, but I'm with you. Your starting pitching, all five, all four of your starts were good, Looked really good. I mean, that was the best start of the season by Marco Gonzalez, and then after that, I mean, Chris Flexen, solid. Uh, Tyler Anderson, solid. Yusei Kikuchi, good. You know, I, I actually think that in certain spots the bullpen did enough. The problem is, Danny, this team can't hit. They can't hit. They're 30th in the league in batting average. They are 29th in on-base percentage. They are 28th in OPS. They are 4th in all of baseball and strikeouts. Like, they they just can't hit. And when you're playing New York and you have your pitching give you what the starters gave you, where you're holding New York in check for those four games, you got to score more runs. You can't keep scoring three runs or less, which is what you've been doing for the last five games. For the last starters, five games. Starters were not the problem, right? starters starters were not the problem and the story of this road trip in which they went from really being in position where you had the lead in all but one of those games right like you 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 held the lead in all but one of the games you played all but one of these 10 games on this road trip yep and and you end up coming back four and six which is not disastrous it's not, especially when you consider the quality of competition, but you had an opportunity to be a lot better. It is kind of disastrous, though, when it comes to their wild card chances, right? I mean, the rest of the way, they got a lot of games left against Houston, against Oakland, against Boston, 21 to be specific. Those are opportunities, though, right? Like, when you, does it help them? No, it, it doesn't. And if they had gone six and four, though, that doesn't make those 21 games any less important. Yeah. This is, they, they're, they're going to have to, they, their wild card chances remain long shots at this point. Yeah, and I, they didn't ruin the season with this this road trip. They still would have had a long way to go to get there. The question of who's to blame, though, and who's responsible, the starting pitchers are not it. Nope, they were great. The, the, the starting pitcher did this team mess with the bullpen? 
Because there are going to be some people that are going to point at that, especially with Diego Castillo on Friday night, and say, all right, you're telling me this happened in the 10 games, 11 games after they traded the guy that was a leader and a huge part of their bullpen. That everybody freaked out when they traded Kendall Graveman. Now you tell me that they can't hold on to leads. This doesn't take a, a rocket scientist to piece together that they, they've disrupted the chemistry of that bullpen. I came away from the series, especially the series against the Yankees, feeling that, yeah, okay, that's the easy thing to point at it, but it's the fact that they were 7 for 32, that they were 7 for 32 with runners in scoring position over yeah. the four games in New York. Right. It's how many guys they left on base. To me, to me, the offense is the issue. And, oh, by the way, the offense is the issue in spite of the most consistent performer being the guy that you got for Kendall Graveman and Abraham Toro. Yeah, Abraham Toro has been good. So you look at that trade at face value, I do think it is a net plus for the Mariners, the problem is that Diego Castillo has not been what you thought he might be coming from Tampa, as at least, maybe not even a Kendall Graven, but somebody close to that. He has not been close to that. He's two games, though, right? I mean, this is this is a, an extended stretch. He's responsible for two of those games. That's, that's, that's true, but that's how it started with Rafael Montero, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if we're looking for to diagnose if this is a post-mortem exam and the, the Mariners are out on the slab and you say, okay, what happened? During yeah. this 10-game road trip that you went 4-6, and six, like Diego Castillo is a complicating condition. He's not the cause of death. You're right. You're right. It is an offense that hasn't been able to score. And, I mean, at least Jared Kelnick got going this weekend, which is, I think, a promising sign going forward. Until he got thrown out. Yeah, I know. I'm. <laughs> what are you doing, man? You know what's going to happen if you argue with umpires about balls and strikes, let alone if you continue to do it from the dugout. What you doing, man? Yeah, that wasn't good. But... Kelnick did. Kelnick heated up. You've continued to get really good. Abraham Toro has has been a huge help. You were tough. You were scrappy. You put yourself in positions. You just weren't able to knock guys in. And it's a continuation of what has happened for the entire season. Is there a part of you that wishes that they got blown out? Because this is this is a negative line of thinking. But I mean, what I think stings more about this weekend series is that you had an opportunity to win all four of these games. And that Mm -hmm. you should have at the very least split the series if not win three Mm -hmm. of two or three of four. Yeah. No, I would not ever rather get blown out to the Yankees. As much as as much as it stinks to sit there and 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 go through watching that Yankees team clobber their way back into games and seeing that stadium stir to life, which it absolutely does. Uh, New York Yankee fans have perfected the, the the way to intake alcohol in which for the first three to four innings, they're basically just getting hopped up. Like they're, they're, they're like stock car racers who are having their fuel cells packed full of fuel. And then about the sixth and seventh inning as their team starts coming around, they're at full lather. Like as much as, and I thought back to 2000 with Arthur Rhodes giving up a three-run homer to David Justice in the series clinching game. Alex Rodriguez's final game as a Mariner in in Game 6. I thought back to the next year, Game 4, where the Mariners, after dropping two in a row at home, had fought back and they held a one-run lead in the the eighth inning. They needed six outs to equal that series and only to see it Bernie Williams homer off of Arthur Rhodes. And then the next inning, Alfonso Soriano hit a walk-off two-run homer that really... Yankees won it in the fifth game, but that fourth game is when it was decided. You'd... I'd much rather lose close than, than get walloped. Getting walloped by that team is awful. Well, it's not good, especially if you're at one of the games in person and you see all of those those uh, Bronx people making their guttural noises, which are generally a uh, chant of uh, four syllables, five claps. Derek Jeter! 
like that crap. So that's the entirety of the game, and they do it for every single one of their players, even if there's five or six syllables, somehow they figure it out. But when you get past that, Danny, for me, the reason that I actually would have perhaps been okay with it, I would have been okay with the reality check, because now I know that the Mariners are close. You know, the reality mm-hmm. check of the Yankees that's great. finally heating themselves up. I know, but that's what makes it so much fur- more frustrating. Like, I would have been understanding if they were to go into this weekend series and get blown out the same way that Houston blew them out in two of those three games and almost blew them out in the first game, you know? Because it would be a reality check. Like, that Houston, I think, is on a different level than just about everybody in the American League and that New York has the potential to be that because they have been heating up. There's a part of me that kind of wishes that it had been like that because now I'm, now I'm more frustrated that they blew these leads and that they couldn't score runs. Like, score! Jeez, just score! I mean, you're... The Yankees pitching is banged up. You have plenty yep. of opportunities. They are not They are not some murderer's row like nope. they were back then. You know, this is not the 2000, 2001 teams. This is a bunch of choke artists that blow it in the playoffs every single year. Ugh, it's frustrating, man. It's really frustrating. You had plenty of opportunities out there, and you blew it. Ugh. Here's why it's good. Because anybody that thinks and wonders how close the Mariners are looks at that series and looks at this road trip, and the answer is they're really close. They're closer than we thought they were going to be at the beginning of the season. And that should inform every decision that this team makes going forward. I'm serious. Look, they're close. They're close. They need some more offense. They have some young bats that will be gaining maturity. Jared Kelnick is heating up. All of these things are good signs. Everything I want to happen the rest of the season is to be the, okay, next year is the year we can start going for it. Next year is when our window opens. That 2022, I can buy into the idea that you don't want to rush it this year. But everything, and this continues to point to the fact that next year, that next year this team should be expected to contend. Because you know what? They're right there this year. I know, but man, it was on the table. They had it. The foul was cooking, and they couldn't get it done. Just bothers me, It's Danny and Gallant. It is Monday, August 9th. We've got a practice game for the Seahawks to get through some contract questions and front page news right now. This this is the front page. Today's top two stories and why they matter. Every morning at 710, get what you need to know to start your day right now. I went to the Seahawks mock game yesterday. They won! 22 to 3. Bruna Ford, Fat Man touchdown. Yeah, the the fumble that led up to the Fat Man touchdown was really, really bad. Like one of the worst fumbles I've ever seen. There was a pitch. I'm not going to say the guy's name. I feel bad for him. Bounced off his hip. He tried to pick it up three times. I could tell he was really angry. And Puna Ford picked it up. Scooped it and scored. It was a glorified two-hand touch performance. And I think that referees were having a difficult time determining what was a tackle and what wasn't. But it was great to see fans back out there, especially at the end, Danny. They started kneeling down at the end. And fans started booing. It was hilarious because they wanted to see more action out there. I loved it. That was the best part. Welcome back to Lumen Field, fans. That was great. Dude, 15,000 people were there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was It was a good crowd. It was a good crowd. They were loud. They were boisterous. Yeah, it was great to be back and actually see human beings in a football stadium in the great state of Washington for a change. But what the- did you say? First home crowd in what? 20 months? 21 months? Yeah, man. Jeez. It was the, it was the game against the 49ers. Yeah. Wow. God. All right, well, the big news coming out of yesterday was not what was on the field, but it was what was said about two hold-ins, specifically Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown. Dwayne Brown's hold-in was acknowledged yesterday by Pete Carroll, and Russell Wilson put a little public pressure on the Seahawks to give Brown the long-term deal that he's reportedly looking for. I mean, not having Dwayne Brown out there is a you know, pretty, pretty significant deal uh, because I think he's one of the best left tackles in the game. You know, I just, There's no arguing it. I think he's... 
you know, as good as it gets. There's nobody more athletic, uh, more talented than he is. Um, you know, age is just a number, <laughs> you know, uh, he's, 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 he looks like he's 28, 30 out there. You know, he's really exceptional. So smart and um, physical, uh, understands the game. And I think people fear him, you know, just be honest with you, you know, when they're, when they're rushing him and playing against him. So, uh, we definitely want to be able to get him back out there, you know, and, and, uh, we got to figure that out because, uh, you know, he's, he, we need Dwayne Brown. 28, 29 years old. He actually turns 36 at the end of this month, Danny. And Seattle's already without Ethan Posick, who seemed to re-aggravate his hamstring on Friday at practice, plus Cedric Abwehi and Jamarco Jones. They are banged up on the offensive line, and no Dwayne Brown is definitely a problem. Our dude Stone Forsythe, that means. He's getting some time. He did get to play yesterday. He was the starter out there, yes. We are the lucky charm. We'll get more into the contracts I think Jamal Adams, I feel good about that situation. I, I have no idea where the Dwayne Brown situation's going. Right there with you. The front page. We mentioned this a little bit before, Jared Kelnick being thrown out. I get why he was mad at the high strike call. It it, it wasn't it wasn't a good look, and I can see especially get from Jared's perspective how he thought it was higher, even than, than the tracer showed it to be. But he got ejected, and that was a bad move for a rookie who, A, he had been barking at a previous strike call. He is a rookie, and in this case, he kept talking. When I thought the ump was overly sensitive. I thought Lance Barrett was overly sensitive. What a surprise, an oversensitive ump. But then I saw, like, he let Kellenick get back to the dugout where he was turning around and barking at him. Kellenick yeah. got in the dugout, turned around, and then started gesturing and yelling, like where he's raising his hand to his chest level. That's going to get a 10-year vet tossed. And Kelnick got tossed, then Service got tossed. And I think Service got tossed because he was more mad at Kelnick than he, than he was at the ump. The, the Mariners didn't want to play J.P. Crawford yesterday. He was really sick. And Crawford ended up having to go into the game. Here's the skipper. I think it makes it pretty clear that he was less than pleased with his rookie's uh, decision-making late in that game. It was a heck of an at-bat. He really did second, third, tough lefty out there, throwing the sliders and the curveballs, whatnot. Uh, you know, the, the call did not go his way. But, you know, uh, you learn a lot of different lessons in this game. And, you know, we were a little bit shorthanded today. You know, you need to be heads up, understanding where your teammates are at and where we're at there. I think uh, Jared was fine. It's just when he got back to the dugout, he didn't let it go. And that's what got him tossed. Let it go, let it go. Though, at the same time, Danny, his all-of-a-sudden performance at the plate has me wondering, how can you make Kelnick be as confident as he is in his perception of the strike zone, which might not actually be reality? Because whatever is working right now is working. Yeah, you can't get tossed in that situation. You got to know when it's okay to get tossed and when you can't. You can't get tossed when it's going to force your sick teammate into the field. J.P. Crawford made a nice play in the field, though. He did. J.P. Crawford, J.P. Crawford's a tough dude. Yes, he like, is. Like, I want to be – there's probably no one who's my who, who I have embraced more of, like, I don't want that guy going anywhere. I think that guy's an awesome competitor. I think he's a tough kind of player. I had some questions about whether or not his bat was good enough. I don't want him going anywhere. I'm not interested in any free agent shortstops. I love J.P. Crawford. That is front page news. Let's get the professor in here. It's time for our morning drive. John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. It's a four-way battle, and there's only going to be three spots. Somebody has to go. The first and final word on everything, everything. NFL, NFL from the professor, John Clayton. John Clayton. They scored 30 points a game. They're the best running team in football. It's John Clayton's Morning Drive with Danny and Gallant. Uh. Professor, how concerned should the Seahawks be about Dwayne Brown right now? 
I mean, uh, you know, you you, you got to get something done, but you got to get Jamal Adams done first. I mean, he's the younger player. He's going to be more costly. And, uh, you know, the one thing that Pete Carroll said yesterday is that, uh, you know, regardless, you know, they're communicating with him. He's communicating with Pete and all those different things. But uh, when you look at it, it's like, okay, uh, you know, he's not going to get a big raise. I mean, look at because, you know, he's 30, he's going to be 36 years old. And, you know, Andrew Whitworth uh, basically, uh, you know, can match up and say, okay, I'm as good as him. And he, he ends up getting 10 million a year. I mean, basically it's a matter, can they resurrect everything to, uh, you know, give him roughly the same amount of base salary and all that on an extension and then try to give him a signing bonus and all that stuff. So, uh, you know, and plus he's not going to play in the preseason games. He's not going to be out there for the three preseason games. And normally he's going to get one or two rest days. So they just need to get something done with Jamal first and then see the cap room and then do something with Dwayne. All right, Professor, here's my take on the Jamal Adams situation. I think the Seahawks have gotten to the point where, like, okay, we made you the kind of offer that gets these deals done. We feel really good about where we're at. Now it's up to you to take it. Jamal Adams is kind of testing to see if holding out is going to get him a little bit more, if kind of you can wait to, to get it out. And I think the Seahawks are pointing at it and saying, look, we've done a lot of these deals with elite defensive players, Earl Thomas, Richard Sherman. We're, we're where we need to be, and, and it's it's just a matter of time before you accept it. Do you think that's a pretty good synopsis? Yeah, plus they might have to increase it a little bit because, I mean, you look at some of these deals that are starting to come in. I mean, the fact that Darius Leonard got $19.7 million, you know, they I, I know there was a struggle to give Bobby Wagner $18 million, but they did. And then, of course, you see uh, you know another $19 million linebacker get done. So I think that, uh, you know, you, you know that they're offering in the 16s. So they probably need to go a little bit higher and then get it done. You know, I don't know where he is on the physical standpoint because, again, he had a couple surgeries. I know that he wouldn't have been practicing had he got the deal done. But this is roughly the time to get some things done because now you see Xavier Howard, despite uh, being greedy and wanting to do something and get more money after two years. I mean, he was able to work something out. Now he's practicing. Deshaun Watson, who doesn't want to be in Houston, is on the practice field as we speak today. It's time to get something done, and something needs to be done this week. We'll see how that ends up going. Uh, We also saw this past week that the Bills gave Josh Allen a six-year, $258 million deal with $150 million guaranteed, Professor, which I imagine means that we're going to see some bigger contracts in store for other quarterbacks who are looking for new deals, maybe Lamar Jackson, maybe Baker Mayfield. Are they going to get north of what Josh Allen just got? Could be, because, again, this turned out to be bigger. Now, the guarantee is $103 million as far as upon signing. Because, again, you got to watch in the guarantee, because what usually ends up happening is that uh, you know whoever reports it will put the whole, the whole guarantee, but that last year or two is going to be you know, an injury guarantee, and that doesn't count. So it's $103 million on the guarantee, which is still pretty good because, again, he wins on the average. He wins on the uh, guarantee you know, because when you're talking $50 million a year on the guarantee, that's uh, pretty, pretty impressive. So I think that ultimately uh, he got more than I thought, and that probably means Lamar is going to get more. Maybe certainly not Baker because Baker's not to the level of Josh Allen and not to the level of Lamar Jackson. But uh, Jackson very well could challenge the $43 million a year. 
Professor, it was a big weekend at the Hall of Fame. We saw a record-setting class of guys that were inducted. What was your reaction or takeaway from the proceedings? Yeah, it was great. I mean, uh, I, I like the fact that uh, you know there, there were so many because what was it, twenty-four guys that got enshrined mm-hmm. over the weekend, and uh, you know their speeches were co- more compact. I mean, uh, I think what I don't know if Pey- Peyton was scheduled to go seven minutes. I mean, he was so good in his speech that, you know, you probably wanted him to go a little bit more. But I thought it all kind of worked out for timing and everything else. I mean, it was such an upbeat type of uh, climate there with the fans, the weather, everything else. So I thought that was good. And again, you know, it's like for me, it was also good to see all the Steelers that were able to get in, you know, from Bill Cower to Donnie Shell, Bill Nunn, all that, all the guys that I kind of broke in and uh, watched when I started covering this league. So that was great. People are wondering what Peyton Manning's going to do next, and he also had a speech up there. He, he, it was an interesting speech. He roasted Tom Brady a couple of times, very sweaty at the very end of it. I, I saw this tweet by Adam Schefter, John. Peyton Manning sounded like he could one day be the NFL commissioner. I think a lot of people are wondering what Manning does next. Do you feel like that's something that could be potentially in his future? Commissioner, no, because, again, I think if you're going to be commissioner, you probably need to have some kind of uh, law degree or some you know, legal-type bearing and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, certainly, I mean, you can see that he's going to do some more stuff on ESPN, some broadcasting uh, with his brother uh, this fall. It's not every game, but he's going to do some of that. And then ultimately, I think he's going to buy into a team and then become like a John Elway type. So that one, that one, I, I think has always been in the cards. So it's like broadcasting first, and then once the opportunity presents itself, then to see if he can, you know, get into the Tennessee Titans, the New Orleans Saints, or uh, Denver Broncos, or whatever. I mean, that's what one th- was going to be interesting is to see, you know, because now you look and you see that. Uh, you know, the Denver Broncos are worth $3.75 billion. You have all the sisters and brothers and that fighting over the team. And so you kind of get the idea that after the season, they may sell. And then, uh, you know, Peyton, when he was out in Denver with John Elway uh, a couple weeks ago, was even mentioning, it's like, hmm, that would be interesting. That thought of which franchise he's going to be most closely identified with, it's, it's probably not going to be the Colts. Which is a little, but I mean, or maybe it's just that the Colts don't have any potential sale coming there with the Ursay family. It's weird to think of, I, I've always thought of Peyton Manning as a Colt mm-hmm. first and foremost. I don't know if that's the case going forward. No, he's, I mean, he's a Colt foremost and always will be a Colt because, again, I mean, he came in there in 1998. I mean, he built that franchise to go to the Super Bowl. I mean, and so he's always going to be a Colt. But, you know, the one thing is, you know, Jimmy Ursay owns the team, but, mm-hmm. you know, his daughters are pretty savvy as far as business because I know yep. like, one of his daughters is real good with the uh, a pantry type of business. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to go in. And we're seeing that around the league that, I mean, you can see more women that are running the teams because they're daughters of owners. And, uh, it's, you know, it's in Tennessee right now. Certainly it's down in uh, New Orleans and all these different places currently, I guess, in Denver. So, uh, you know, but I think in the case of Jim Ursay, I mean, it's pretty well targeted that it's going to go to one of the daughters. Professor, we always appreciate your time and your perspective. We'll look forward to catching up with you tomorrow. Okay, sounds good. That is the Professor John Clayton. You can follow his work, 710sports.com. You can also hear him this afternoon coming on with Wyman and Bob. That question of what exactly is happening with Dwayne Brown and Jamal Adams, we have confirmation that there are hold-ins. What does that mean going forward? We'll tell you next.
You are listening to Danny and Gallant. Powered through the Alaska Airline Studios. On 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. Pete Carroll spoke with the media after yesterday's Seahawks mock game. He acknowledged that Jamal Adams and Dwayne Brown, their presence in camp, are hold-ins. And as we've suggested, though... We'll get to Jamal Adams a little bit later. There seems to be a much bigger divide between Camp Dwayne Brown and the Seahawks over an extension for the soon-to-be 36-year-old left tackle. We know the Seahawks want to extend Jamal Adams. We do. Like that's That's been clear. I don't, I'm don't. i not sure that's the case with, with, with Dwayne Brown. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know for sure what's going on. But, look, he's someone on the other side of 35, right? And he's been. If the Seahawks decided that we're not looking to extend him right now, is that a bad business decision? Yeah, because they don't have any options. They but don't have any a, other options for next year, do they? Well, for for two thousand twenty one or two thousand twenty two. For for either, who do you have as as your next left tackle right now on the roster, and how do you get the next left tackle as well? That's that's the big issue I think that's going on for the Seahawks. Deciding that Dwayne Brown has to be that guy right now is dangerous. I agree, but that's the problem that you've kind of put yourself in by getting you rid don't, of the you two don't first make decisions. You you don't you don't make a decision as as a team based on we need the thirty six year old guy to stay healthy a season a, 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 more than a season away from now. Like that's that's a way to set money on fire is to say we're going to pay someone because we need him to be available two years from now. That's not how it works. That. You you put yourself at risk for that not – he might not be the answer even if you pay him. If Brown's not on your roster then, who would be the answer? Like that that's my – the unknown, I feel like with this left tackle, even at 36, 37 years old, Danny, is, is pretty dangerous because you've seen what Brown can do. If a bad left tackle steps in, what happens? If you're, if, if you're the team, it is in your best interest to decide that next year, Right. If you're if you're the team, you're asking two different questions here. Because if you're the team, you're better off deciding who's going to be your left tackle after this season. Like there's just no doubt about that. I can get why Dwayne Brown is saying I want an extension now, but if you're the team, it would be your preference to wait and decide that because if he's unhealthy, if he gets hurt or if he's unable to play, if you need to go find someone, at least you would have the money that you haven't that you would have already paid to Brown, who is asking for it now. That's true. Uh, my biggest reservation is, though, I, I, I'm with you on this, by the way, in terms of like what is smart. When The problem is, is there going to be someone available to you on the open market? Because that's the only way I could see you getting a left tackle, and I feel like you're, you're rolling dice if you're playing it like that, too, at the same time. You know what but, Dwayne Brown is. But paying him now is not going to change the, the dice-rolling element of that at all, Right. Like, paying him now is not going to change the risk that you're taking. I agree. It's a, it's a risk I would be more comfortable taking than, than waiting until free agency and seeing what's available. Because I know what Dwayne Brown is, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know what's going to happen over the course of the next year. You're right. And he might get hurt over the course of the next year. Exactly. You're right. And then you might be in the position where you have to replace him and you've already spent the money on him. Like, that's a, that's a disastrous situation if you're a team. And this is a team, by the way, Marshawn Lynch, Cam Chancellor, and Michael Bennett, Throw Cliff Averill in there. All of those dudes so got signed ex- okay. that, that, that signed extensions that they never played a down of the seasons you added. You paid them for seasons, and they never played a down of those seasons. 
is left tackle a more difficult position to get another player at than maybe anything defensive other than end? quarterback? Uh, defensive end? But defensive, well, got, defensive I mean, end, I feel dudes, like we've seen with the Seahawks, that can play there. You got, you've got dudes that can play there. If, if you're saying you have to pay Dwayne Brown now because you're uncertain about him being there this year, that you have to make him happy and you have enough, that's a different question than saying, okay. is it in the franchise? It is not in the franchise's best interest to extend Dwayne Brown right now. What happens it, if he it, does what he did in Houston? If he, if and he sits out for eight games? That's a huge problem. Because now it's affected this year that you haven't paid for. And you don't have time to go and get. And you have to make a... that The, the question is, for Seattle, is it worth that risk? Is it worth the risk that he won't play this year to try and hold on to some freedom to decide what to do at left tackle eight or ten months from now? I can see the team's rationale for doing that. And I'm not going to say it's wrong. But I could see how that how that could have some some real effects. And and my answer, honestly, is that you don't spend money as a team because you're afraid about what's going to happen. You spend money because you think it's a good deal. You spend money because you think it helps your team. And if you, after looking at where this guy is at in his career, decide that it's better to, to wait to decide whether we're going to spend money on him long-term until after this season, I, I could see a pretty sound rationale for doing that. I don't think the team's wrong to take that approach. Would you wait? halfway through the season for him to eventually come back to the team because based off of the past when he held out in Houston he held out until the I guess necessary time had passed before if he didn't miss if he missed another week he would not accrue another season towards free agency he did eventually come back into the fold and Houston traded him to Seattle of course right after that game between the Texans and the Seahawks say he sits out for that time would you feel any more willing to give him that extension or would you wait it out if I'm on the he's fence. going to, if I know he's going to show up, if I know he's eventually going to show up, would I just sit there and lump it for for yes. seven or eight games? And you're saying that I've made the decision now that it's not. I don't want to extend him. I, I, if I'm the Seahawks and I say I don't want to extend him, and you wait, and you say okay, if you do, if you choose that, he's going to miss the first eight games. Yeah, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to if okay. if I've decided as a franchise that it's it's not we need to retain that flexibility when it comes to a guy who is past 35. Yeah, I'm I'm going to I'm going to have him miss the the first 8 games and I'll say we love you Dwayne. We hope that you're here. We think we've got the possibility of doing something special, but we're not at a point that we can extend you right now. Here is Pete Carroll asked about if Dwayne Brown is unhappy about not having a new contract. Dwayne and I are doing great. In, in, in our conversations about stuff, he's been he's been great, and uh, he, he's he's got he's making a statement. You know, he's he's making a statement, and, and uh, about what he feels he needs he needs to have happen. So, front office versus Dwayne Brown instead of Pete Carroll versus Dwayne Brown. I'll say this: that sounds very similar to the approach that Pete Carroll took when Cam Chancellor was holding out. Mm. That that line of of thinking, which is to acknowledge the 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 desire to acknowledge what the player wants to even express a little bit of empathy of like he's doing what he thinks he needs to do without without really drawing a firm line in saying hey that's we're not not going to tell you what our approach is but it's kind of like acknowledging that the that the player wants something and I'm not sure if the Seahawks are going to give it to him or not I'm not sure if the Seahawks are interested in going down that road Chancellor held out for a couple of games and came back Two. right Yes. Different situation. Younger player. His extension, he had two years left on his contract. 
He had two years left on his deal. Dwayne Brown is it's more an age issue rather than where he's at in his contract because he has one year left on his deal. Pete was also asked if Brown would miss games, the thing that we talked about just a moment ago. I don't know. I don't know that. He, he's not going to play in preseason. He wasn't going to, so that's um, not going to make a difference right now. So, coy, very coy. What do you hear? I hear that he's probably thinking the same way that the front office is. Because he's been so curt when asked about anything Dwayne Brown thus far, right? I mean, he's been he has been with with Jamal Adams. He's waxed poetically with Dwayne. He hasn't. Is is that something to read into? Yeah, I think, I think it so. is a little. It's clear that the team and Pete's not different from the front office. Pete is part of the front office. So if if the team is making a decision, that's that's Pete's decision too. Jamal Adams, it's very clear they want to extend. I'm not sure if that's their approach. If if that is their belief with with Dwayne Brown, they haven't indicated it. So, and in fact, hearing stuff like that is kind of like, well, that's up to him. Which leads me to to wonder if that's if the if the team has made a decision that that's that's probably not a role, and whether that is because of the price that Dwayne Brown is asking for on an extension. Or the the long-term risk that an extension carries for someone of his age. We'll dive back into this in Blue 42 with Brock Heward. I'm Paul Gallant. He's Danny O'Neill. Danny and Gallant, 710 ESPN Seattle. It wasn't the bullpen's fault this weekend in the Bronx. We'll tell you why next. You are listening to Danny and Gallant on 710 ESPN Seattle. Now, here are your hosts, Danny O'Neill and Paul Gallant. It is Danny Glomp. We're going to have Brock Hewer joining us, fresh off the Hall of Fame. He was at Canton yesterday when he saw Peyton. Peyton with a with a rousing uh, gut gut crackling. He had people laughing and cracking up. The comedy show that is Peyton Manning yesterday at the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Had someone write those jokes out for him, probably. The Mariners blew three leads in the first three games of the Yankees series. Tack that on to the two one-run losses they suffered in Texas, and this has not been a great road trip for the bullpen. Bullpen wasn't the problem, though. No, right? it wasn't. You got you got to score more runs, Danny. I mean, yeah. they, they they did their job, I think, in most of the games. It's unfortunate that when you're scoring three runs for the most of this series or less, you're putting that bullpen in a bind. I mean, that is a really good Yankees lineup. The Yankees lineup is not where the injuries are. It's their pitching staff. You should have scored more. You had opportunities to score more. Even with not hitting that well, and it's not like they tore the cover off the ball, they wasted a lot of opportunities. A ton of opportunities. And if you tell me the story of this weekend was 7 for 32 over four games with runners in scoring position. It's an average of 219. Number of runners that they left on base. They left more than 20 runners on base over the course of those four games. Like that's, I'm sorry, over 30 runners on base over the course. That, that's, why, that's why you lost three or four. And as much as it's tempting to go through and say that the Mariners, they ruined the one thing that was consistent about their team in the bullpen. I don't know, man. I, I just, I can't, everything that we've seen in, in statistical trends would point to the fact that, hey, you're not going to keep, you're not going to remain this successful in one-run games. You're, you're not going to keep doing this over the course of the season. At some point, your success in one-run games is going to start looking a lot like your winning percentage in other games. And that's kind of what's happened over the course of this road trip. 
And so to chalk it up and say, well, they ruined the mojo that they had in the bullpen. Yeah, this is this is about an offense. And by the way, the, one of the better hitters that you've had over the course of this this time has been the guy you got for Graveman in Toro. Right. I, I, you know, in Toro, per fan graphs, Danny, Toro has accumulated more wins above replacement in 11 games on the Mariners than Kendall Graveman had before being traded. For what it's worth, and um, a listener of ours, Britt, had said that we're going to get a beer at the end of the season if (laughs) Toro has a higher number by the end of the year. Well, already, I mean, it's looking better. Toro has helped on an everyday basis. Graveman can't help you on an everyday basis. you got to wonder about Graveman in the future, too, if he's going to be able to keep this level up. I guess my question is, Danny, if we're looking at the bats and the issues that they're having, should they have added more to their offense at the trade deadline with the bats, not talking about the bullpen, they did add, I think, a significant piece in Abraham Toro, but that's it. And they didn't go and get, like a lot of people wanted to see, Nelson Cruz or someone like that that they could potentially add in, put him at designated hitter or something like that. Or Joey Gallo. Yeah. Who was added by the Yankees. With that home run on uh, Thursday. Anthony Rizzo, who was added by the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Should they have gotten Reynolds? No. As much right. as I want them, unless it's unless it's someone that you're really paying very little for, and and I'm guessing that those teams were probably offering more than Seattle was willing to offer. It made it made more sense for those teams to to invest to go all in right now on this season. For the Mariners, you don't want to hurt 2022 or 2023 to benefit what is always going to be sort of a a lottery ticket chance on a wild card berth this year. Yeah. Right? Like you, you that I think that that decision making was was sound. You do need to add bats. And I'm not sure where you do that, but that is something that front and center, how do you improve this lineup going forward next season? You've got an opportunity at third base, but Toro might slide in there. You're going to be hoping to get Evan White back, but I'm not sure if that's going to be the long-term option because he had not hit so far. He seems like, like he's you, a defensive backup for you in the future, right? Do you get it in the outfield? Do you get it? How do you how do you improve your bats? You're going to get some young improvement. I think you can look at it and say Raleigh and Kelnick are going to be better hitters next year than they were this year. Mm-hmm. Where where do you get that improvement? Where does the improvement in your bats come from? Well, that's that's a question to ask their farm system and and their minor leagues. Do they feel like some of these other players, Julio Rodriguez, who just won the bronze medal with the Dominican Republic, he had a home run in the bronze medal game, saw him running off the field, super excited about winning that medal. Is, is Rodriguez going to be up next year? Do you, do you start banking on that? And do no. you also bank on, on – okay, so no to that. He might I'm be up you. next year. You do not – isn't the lesson of Jared Kelnick? Do not, not Do not trust the phenom yes. to hit the ground running. Yes. Right? Yes. I agree with you there, so be very careful with that. And also, I guess, when Kyle Lewis – if Kyle Lewis, and, and we talked with Jerry DePoto last week, and it sounds like Kyle Lewis might be back by the end of August, earliest. Does Kyle Lewis's return mean that you're going to have the same Kyle Lewis that we saw last year or some shadow of that version of Kyle Lewis? So I, I bet that part of the Mariners' plan right now is looking at themselves and saying, okay, well, we know that those guys are going to be here. Do we want to pull a bunch of resources into something that would be maybe temporary in the lineup? And I'm, I'm assuming that they will be trying to spend big at one position in the infield in free agency, don't you think? I mean, I don't know. Abraham Toro probably moves over to third base because I'm just under the assumption that Kyle Seager's not going to be here next year. 
So mm-hmm. do you make a big-time offer at, I don't know, a shortstop and maybe keep J.P. Crawford at shortstop, move that shortstop to second, or move that guy to third and move Toro to second? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you're, defensively, I think you're going to find yourself having some issues with some of the um, combobulations that you put together with this lineup in the near future based off of what you would do in free agency. I don't want to move J.P. Crawford for a second. That dude's your shortstop. I, I love the way he plays. I love the way I love his approach at the plate. I love I love his mentality. And the value of or the upside of some of these younger shortstops that are going to be free agents, whether it's Correa, Trevor Story, the other dude that's that's is Corey Seager. Yep. The the upside of all of those guys is the offensive production you get from them at shortstop. So I don't I don't think that's the, that's the market. In. I honestly think that all of the money any it's going towards starting pitching. Like if I was gonna, if I was going to add add a significant player, I I think I want it to be a starter. I I think Man. I think I want to find another guy at the begin at the at the the early part of your rotation, someone that you can pair alongside Logan Gilbert, you say Kikuchi, Chris Flexen's part of that going forward, Marco Gonzalez. I I think that's I think I want another starting pitcher. Are you going to be able to find that in free agency? And is that person going to want to sign with you? Are the two big questions that you, you can't quite answer yet. No, but Blake Snell, we never anticipated that someone like that was going to be. If True. somebody like Blake Snell becomes available this year, I think that's the time that you pull that trigger. Honestly, like, I the think that, Yes, I okay. think that that's a, a year ago. It wasn't the right time. I think this year, if somebody like Blake Snell becomes available because the team starts balking at how much money he's going to command in arbitration. I think this is the year you pull that. I think starting pitching is still at the top of my list. And you should be encouraged because I I think the lineup is going to improve as these young hitters start to develop. It is Danny and Gallant. We've got Brock Heward. He's joining us fresh off a weekend in Canton. We'll hear how the Hall of Fame was and ask him about his take on Dwayne Brown's contract.